Coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia. It's time for another episode of Tech Talk with your host, Joey Klein. Greetings. I think that this actually might be the first Tech Talk of 2023, so welcome all. We have a single guest today. We're going to focus all of our attention on one company, Carpool Logistics, founded by CEO Mike Malikoff. Mike, how are you? Doing well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. Okay, so all eyes are on you. And let's start with just kind of a headline uh, executive summary of what does Carpool Logistics do? So Carpool is a car shipping marketplace. We support dealerships, auto auctions, individuals that need to reposition their vehicles from point A to point B all over the country in the U.S. Okay, so I think that most people listening to this, their on-the-ground knowledge of what this might look like is, you know, the the large vehicles on the interstate we see with, you know, 10 cars attached to the back of it, okay? What percentage of the car transport market do those vehicles make up? So majority of the transportation actually happens on... um, smaller car haulers that move three to five vehicles at a time versus the nine car haulers that you see on the road. Those generally support the car manufacturers. Uh, so from a plant to a, uh, to a rail yard, that kind of transport. And the smaller ones usually move a lot of the used vehicles all over the country. And they're okay. 95% of the market. So like an F-350 with, you know, something strong attached to the back of it. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yep, that's exactly right. And are the, are the folks that are at the 95% of the market, right, the folks that are taking used car from lot A to lot B, right, not, you know, Kia plant to dealership floor, is this their full-time job? Do they flex? What, what's the profile of the people that are in that quote-unquote profession? Most of them are entrepreneurs, and they are a small operation, small business. Uh, a lot of times it's husband-wife combination. Husband is the driver, and the wife is the dispatcher. But yeah, it is full-time generally, and usually it's you know, small companies. It's one or two trucks max. Okay, and I'm, I'm going to guess this is a bit more regional than national? Uh, it is very much regional, yes. Most of the transportation is two, 300 miles. Yeah. Uh, there is, of course, longer transportation, especially for relocation and across the country. Those are generally a little bit larger trailers that operate those halls. Okay. But, you know, for most of it, it's, look, obviously it depends on the size of the state, but mostly staying within the state or, if not, maybe going one state next door. Pretty much, yeah. Okay. Two, three hundred miles generally is the range. Okay, so so what is the what what is the relationship right now between those kind of mom and pop operations and the dealerships that they serve? How do they get business? How do they know about? How do they get opportunities? How do they function in terms of payment? Like, what is the disruption that was needed in this space? So it's extremely fragmented market. So as I mentioned, a lot of the small operators. You know, they can only handle whatever their truck can fit. So dealerships have much larger need to support them all over the country. So they want to have one or two vendors that they work with rather than a plethora of large companies. So, and technology lacks in the space, obviously, as you know, operating a small trucking company, 
Uh, they generally don't have a lot of technology, so there's lacks tr- lacks transparency. You don't know when the vehicle is getting picked up, when it's delivered. So the communication and the flow of the dialogue is very challenging. So um, and ability to track those vehicles in transit is almost non-existent. So one of the things that we at Carpool are focused on is creating that transparency, creating the ability to track those vehicles uh, in transit. Uh, as well as we also focus on pooling multiple vehicles that are moving in the same similar direction that help reduce costs and emissions. Sure. Okay. So let's say that someone is, you know, they've got the capacity for three cars. They're picking up, you know, two from Peachtree Corners. You know, they're going up to, you know, what's called a Greenville, South Carolina. If uh, this basically gives them the ability to say, oh, you know, there's a separate dealership that's in Buford on the way where I could pick one up and it's going to the same place. That's exactly right. So we try to aggregate those so it's already pre-planned for um, our partner transport companies. So we, we bundle those, give them a full load so they're able to transport it to Greenville, and then we'll also help them from Greenville to get back home. Okay. And, and so your your end consumer is the dealership that is using this technology to better enable the transport of the vehicles. It's uh, so we, you know we're double sided marketplace. Both sides, yeah, okay. Right? So on one side it is a dealership, and on the other side is the transportation company. They're both our customers, okay. Uh, and we just help coordinate and flow coordinate flow of information. That is a very interesting. I always, whenever you know, we, we we talk to entrepreneurs, and you know, we're kind of focusing on how does a company kind of go from infancy to um, you know product to um, you know saturating the market with its solution. I, I always think about the sales process, and part of that is probably just you know what what I do for a living. But the double sided marketplace is a very complicated problem. In addition to the fact that you have. Um, you have a very fragmented marketplace. You have small companies. How are you finding all of these, whether it's the mom-and-pop transporters or the dealers? That has to be somewhat of an arduous task to find all these folks. Uh, so we, um, so 30% of our business is referrals, which is helpful. Yeah. Uh, but it is a direct sales process where we reach out to you know, our potential future customers and see if they have, there's a pain point with their transportation needs, and that's whether they're buying vehicles at an auction and need them shipped to their store, or um, they're sending wholesale vehicles to the auction, or if it's a consumer buying a vehicle from the dealership needing to ship that car to their house. So um, it is a direct sales process, but we do we do get a lot of referrals, which is okay. That helps. helps. Yeah. yeah. So what? What are the folks that are not using your technology doing right now? Just calling up the same, you know, couple of folks they've used, you know, every time and just, you know, saying we'll be here on X day but not really having any way to track it? Yeah, exactly. So um, it's a lot of it is, you know, texting multiple people to see who's available to pick up some of these cards and then kind of then following up with them, see if the cards were picked up via calls, text messages. Sometimes you don't get responses. So really lacks kind of visibility and the transparency in the process. So we're trying to simplify. They can reach out to us and mm-hmm. we coordinate everything on the back end. 
and they get communication from us basically 24-7. So, but is this as, I'm, I'm trying to picture kind of the interface and the experience of a dealer that is calling out for a need, right? Is this almost like um, everyone uses an Uber of whatever, but just, you know, forgive me, right? You know, is this like, I go onto my Uber app and I put in where I want to go and I'm waiting to be matched with someone? Is it almost akin to, you know, I need to transport a vehicle to... Charlottesville, Virginia, who's going there, who can help me out? Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, we are the ones that are doing the matching. Okay. So the dealership reaches out to us, and then we control the equation from there. They don't need to be involved Got uh, it. in the matching process. We already have pre-vetted transporters that handle different routes all over the country, and we all automatically will match them with those um, and pre-bundle cars and then match them. Okay, so so it is not just software. It really, you really are offering kind of the full, full service. service. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. We're not a SaaS platform. It is a marketplace where we're the ones, we take the order in, we aggregate, mm-hmm. make it efficient, more efficient, uh, and then assign it to the pre-vetted transportation companies that we already have on our platform. Let me ask you this. Did you consider the other way around, the example that I just gave, and decide on this for whatever reason you're going to give me why it's a better uh, business model? So we feel that uh, a lot of the industry, in the automotive industry, you know, they want to focus on buying and selling cars. They don't want to deal with transportation. So we are their managed transportation partner who basically are an extension of their team as a logistics team to support all of the logistics of their vehicles gotcha makes sense and your background is in shipping and trucking correct i've been in uh, supply chain 20 plus years so okay. yes a lot of it spent on the freight industry side and then i uh learned about automotive space and some of the challenges in automotive industry as it relates to logistics um, and so an opportunity kind of in, improve it and make uh, the process better for our potential clients. So that's kind of how we focused on it. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, you are, look, there are some people that are just, you know, they can't do, they can't work for anyone else and they start a business right out of college and that's all they can do. And there are some people that I find are, you know, after however many years of professional life and they have the light bulb and they do it. And I find those two people tall, fall into two camps. Okay, some of them are those that have always wanted to do their own thing, just never really had you know the idea or the um, you know the opportunity to do it, and others really you know it's like they wish someone else would do it. They're not really an entrepreneur at heart, but like God, no one else is going to solve it, and you're making me do this. Um, do do you think that you fall into one of those two camps, or is there a third or fourth camp that I'm missing that you think your your psychological profile yeah. is in? Interesting point, and I've had. You know, a lot of conversations around about this topic. So, you know, I, I'm probably unique in a way because you have, as you mentioned, you have um, younger adults that come out of college and they want to be entrepreneur from day one, and that's what they start doing right away. You know, they do multiple startups in their career. Some fail, and hopefully, some succeed. And then you have um, other professionals that may or may not get into the entrepreneurship. So, I. I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur, and I was waiting for the right timing and the right opportunity. Um, that timing and opportunity came up during COVID, where um, I found the the right problem to solve. Um, we felt that this space had 
growth opportunity because you have the electric vehicles going direct to consumers. You have people buying more cars online. A lot of that drives direct interaction with the consumers, and mm-hmm. the experience was very poor. So we thought that was a good opportunity to streamline that process. So, I, I mean, I certainly consider myself in that category where I have the experience in the industry, um, the will to succeed as an entrepreneur because I've, you know, I've managed teams, I've scaled businesses in the past, um, and having the right moment in your family life as well yeah. and support system uh, also certainly helps. Now, look, that's that's a big one too. Depending on the profile of your, you know, your spouse or your kids, um, that's uh, and look, I certainly I didn't think about that until I was in that position. But uh, yeah, there's a whole other set of people that you know your uh, your actions have consequences for. I mean, that's probably one of the most challenges challenging parts. That you know, if you're have been in the um, workforce for 15, 20 years. Most a lot of times you're married with children to to quit your at that time probably a lucrative corporate career yeah. and start something from scratch is when your expenses are probably the highest exactly yeah. it's very risky you yeah. have children you have to pay and so having the right uh, you know spouse that can support you and the right infrastructure is very important to be successful. Yeah, because look, at the end of the day, I have um, I was sort of at, at a basic, I don't, I don't know who told me this, maybe a mentor early in my career, but essentially said, look, the, the first step that you have to take to bring everything to work and being the most effective that you can be is if everything goes okay at home. If something is wrong at home with whoever you know your, your partner is and that mental strain is on you, there is no way that you can be 100%. And he was, I, he was absolutely right. Absolutely, 100%. I mean, entrepreneurship is a roller coaster ride already. So you have to have some, be grounded and you have to have the right support system to get through it for sure. Um, so yeah, it is a very important part. What, what, what has been the thing that has surprised you the most, right? You've gone from, you've been at some large corporations, you've been in some smaller corporations, you've managed teams, um, you know, you are now, and I know you have a number of co-founders, but, you know, you are, you are the lightning rod for the company. You are, you know, the, the success of your team is partly riding on your and your partners making this, um, you know, something uh, something real is not the right word. Obviously, it's real, but I think you know what I mean, something bigger yeah. than it is right now. Um, I'm curious what has been the most surprising part of building this and growing a team, whether it's from a management or culture perspective, just what have you found that you didn't realize you were going to find? I mean, I would say, you know, one of the big surprising things, the ecosystem in Atlanta to support entrepreneurs has been amazing. Um, I mean, we've been part of the Atlanta Tech Village building since the day we started the business. That uh, decision has been extremely important to our success. We, that's where we've, we've, you know, we found our co-founders. They were next door to us in the office. It was a very important part. Uh, we were also part of ATDC. So it's uh, the ecosystem itself in Atlanta has been very supportive from an investor perspective as well as just advisory. Um, so that was very helpful. And then as we continue to grow, you know, having the right people in the seats and the right team has been extremely important as well because I have three other co-founders and each one of us 
owns our own lane. We, uh, we know what uh, our accountability is and we focus on that and that creates growth and success for us. Because uh, you know, one person—it's very hard for one person to build something. We have thirty, almost thirty people now. Yeah. Um, so everybody plays a critical role, and the team that we're building is also plays a very critical role for for us to continue to grow. Because we can't do it alone. Uh, that's right. And uh, you know, look, it's in in the early stages. It's kind of all on you know you and the co-founders, and then there gets to sort of be this nebulous point in between where you are power is becoming uh, and influence is sort of diffusing. Um, throughout the organization and it's maybe not as simple as it used to be where you know it's four of you in a room and you just all know the same things each key um, the the individual contribution of each player really means a lot more than it ever did before yeah, absolutely I mean we're at that stage already where you know if you were a strong individual contributor and you're in a manager role now you got to stop being an individual contributor or we stop growing so it's yeah. it's extremely important for the leadership to to lead and not do. That's right. That's right. Set the tone. Um, you know, this is an interesting time nationally, and I think for Georgia in the car industry. Um, uh, look, obviously, you happen to live here, and so this was started in Georgia. Um, Georgia is just crushing it from um, an automotive perspective right now. It's really incredible to see. Yes, uh, you know, Southeast is like the new battery belt. Right. You have, well, it's, it's not just the EVs, right? You have a lot of the um, foreign companies, automotive companies, had already established themselves pretty well. You know, Mercedes, obviously headquartered in Atlanta. Yeah. Porsche is headquartered in Atlanta. BMW has a plant in Greenville. Um, a lot of the imports that come from Europe come to Brunswick and Jacksonville ports. Uh, there's a plant, a Hyundai plant in Columbus. Uh, there's a Mercedes plant in Alabama. So it's the Southeast has been very strong in automotive already. Uh, Nissan's in Tennessee. And now you have the EV companies coming here just because there already is a, an established infrastructure for automotive. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, you know, Cox Automotive is one of the largest um, software providers for dealership industry for automotive so it's a very big automotive space in the southeast and atlanta plays a big role uh, I've, I've always wondered this question so i've anecdotally i know that a lot of the cars that come in to be shipped across the country come into the port of brunswick okay why brunswick right you have savannah so close what what is what is the specific reason about behind why brunswick georgia it's a great question um so, you know, historically, Savannah, you know, became a larger port in the last 10, 15 years. Uh, but the history of vehicles coming in into those Jacksonville and Brunswick ports has been there for quite some time. So I think some of that is the continuity of what has been in place. Mm. Uh, there is uh, good infrastructure, rail infrastructure that carries a lot of these vehicles across the country as well. Uh, so the, you know, it's not just the port. It's the rail infrastructure that sure. supports the port that's... Um, heavily influencing that part because you know think about who's in who's in jacksonville csx yeah csx railroads based out of jacksonville so it's a uh, it's not no coincidence i'm sure yeah okay all right well just little little tidbit there um so uh, let's see we're talked about your team Uh, let's let's actually go back to capital for a second because i feel like you know, even as recently as a couple of years ago, I would I would do the show. We'd ask about capital. We'd ask about things Atlanta could do better. And you know, often there was a comment of, you know, 
the ecosystem is great, support is great, talent is great, but I got to go to the West Coast to raise money. Now, I think that we've seen um, influx of a lot of West Coast or Northeast operations that now have an office here and have set up roots here. I'm, I'm curious, do you, feel, do you feel the ecosystem from a capital perspective is markedly different than even a couple of years ago? Because from an outsider's perspective, it, it feels that way. It feels more robust than it used to be. It certainly feels uh, a lot more robust. I mean, there's a good um, support system from investor perspective in Atlanta or the Southeast in general. So there's multiple funds that already operate in the Southeast. And then you have, as Atlanta continues to grow as a large tech hub, you have a lot of the VC firms opening up shop in the Southeast as well. And obviously Atlanta is one of the key hubs uh, so it is becoming a lot more attractive. So yeah. There is, you know, I, I presented at Venture Atlanta, and there were a lot of out-of-town investors in visiting. Uh, some of them are have offices here. So it, it certainly there is a lot of attention on Atlanta. There, there, there is. Um, I think. Look, the the Sun Belt is uh, is doing quite well. Atlanta is doing quite well on a number of fronts. You you mentioned presenting at Venture Atlanta. I just have to give you kind of another shameless plug here. I believe that you are on the um, the Inno, Atlanta Inno Awards companies to watch, correct? We are, yes. Thank yes. you. Yeah, just, just making sure that we got that in there. <laughs> uh, and, and for anyone listening, I believe the event is March 16th. Um, and of course, to, not not planned whatsoever. But my company JLL is sponsoring it. So if you want to come on down, I believe it's at the West Side at the Star Metals Building. There's a lot of great companies, um, obviously including Carpool Logistics. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Excited now, to be there. Now back to our regularly scheduled <laughs> program. Um, so what what are you up to now? What's the goal of the next twelve to eighteen months? Is this purely just gain as much market share as possible? Is there a new business line you're getting into, new technology. What are you focused on for the future? So we're heavily investing in continuing to build out our platform. Um, we've doubled our software development team um, in the last few months. And core focus is on continue to build out the platform, make it as efficient as possible, create as uh, much efficiency for our customers and visibility as possible. So the tools that we're building um, are constantly getting enhancements. So that's one of the big focus areas. And then also continue to build out our sales team and organization because mm-hmm. uh, we're not even scratching the surface. I mean, we, uh, being in Atlanta, we obviously started out in the southeast heavily, and the goal is to expand across the U.S. So, uh, are, do, do you, does your expansion? I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about. I'm presuming about you know your sales cycle, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. But you know, this seems like certainly for most of these, some a fragmented marketplace like this, this is probably an over the phone sale as opposed to kind of an enterprise in person sale. Are there are there geographies or prospects in which it really makes sense that you've got to have someone on the ground there? Uh, it's a mixture of both. Yeah. Uh, automotive is a very relationship-driven industry, so being local in local markets is very helpful. Um, so we kind of have a mixture of phone, in-person yeah. uh, approach, uh, but we keep our operations as one hub in one place. So the sales force can be distributed. The operations is centralized. Gotcha. Okay. 
Um, you know, it is it is such an interesting time in the automotive market, not just the shift in geography of where automobiles and components are manufactured, but also the hype, I think, uh, makes it sound like it is not real. It is very real, the switch to EV and sort of the race to get into that. I, not a specific question, but just kind of your thoughts on where things are, who you see as some of the future winners and losers, where you think innovation is going to be, just overall thoughts on the market as it kind of switches probably one of the most significant shifts since the um, uh, invention of the automobile, really. Absolutely. Automotive industry is certainly going through a renaissance. We're probably going to see more change in the next five to 10 years than we've seen in the last 50 years. So uh, electrics are not going away. They're certainly here to stay. Uh, and there's going to be pretty aggressive push in the next five years for all manufacturers to start uh, significantly expanding that segment. So, and also, you know, a lot of car manufacturers are looking at distribution model for EVs. Um, you have a you know, relationship through dealerships. Dealerships have to make investments. There's a lot of investment that has to go into to implement this not to mention the charging stations all across the country. Um, a lot of innovation around batteries yeah. is important. The, you know, China controls a lot of the supply chain for the batteries, which is a big challenge for the U.S. So there's a big push to start to build control uh, within North America to, uh, to supply those batteries and the components of those batteries. There's a lot of investment going into that space. So... I think it's going to be very interesting to watch the entire supply chain of EV and how that evolves in the next few years. It, it really does feel like, and this is beyond just batteries, but obviously that is a huge component. It, it does feel like we're entering a phase in um, kind of the international world order in which we are not... Globalization isn't ending. We're not necessarily retreating from globalization, but I feel like things are becoming a bit more regional. I think that certainly the United States is understanding that Look, there was there was absolutely a business case, you know, in the last fifty years for putting a plant of whatever kind halfway around the world, and I think we're seeing now that, um, you know, that has its consequences. There is a uh, there is a real advantage, um, jobs, culture, national security, to having things on our own shore, or at the very least our own continent. I mean, I think Mexico is going to be a very big winner um, as well in this switch. Yeah, absolutely. Your shoring is certainly happening. Um, As you mentioned, a lot of geopolitical challenges um, currently. So a lot of companies are thinking about how do we get closer to the United States and those markets that you serve. So that regionalization is very much uh, on top of mind for all supply chains, not automotive specifically, but just all supply chains all over. Yeah. I mean, the, the service you're providing, it obviously, look, at a, at a at the stage that your company is in, it is very important to focus and focus on doing, you know, generally one thing really, really well and carve out a niche for yourself. Um, my hunch is that the service that you're providing and the technology that you are using for that service can probably be used for other sort of transport models as well. And I'm curious if that is something that is on your long-term radar or it's too far away to even think about that right now. Yeah, kind of like you mentioned. I mean, our core focus is around vehicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, we plan to stick to that core focus. 
there is the freight industry on its own is you know, three trillion dollar industry worldwide. So there is a, already a lot of investment going into that space. We part of the uh, thesis was that automotive supply chain logistics wasn't getting enough attention, and it's much smaller segment. And that's why we decided to go after this segment specifically. And the tools that we're building are specifically for automotive industry. And one of the reasons we decided to build those tools is because it, there's not a lot of uh, uh, platforms and tools out there to really support this business. So it, we thought it was very important uh, as the industry evolves to be able to create the customer experience that consumers are used to than Amazon-like delivery. Sure. Um, if you want to have the car delivered to your house and have a similar experience, there's a whole lot more work to be done. Yeah, that's right. And like, I think that it, there there are plenty of companies that have found a um, a really strong niche in a process or industry that is highly fragmented, that isn't really using technology, that is somewhat analog. Um, those are, you know very very ripe for disruption and that's obviously why you're doing what you're doing absolutely yeah well mike this is great thanks a lot for coming on and telling us about carpool logistics if there are people listening that want to get in touch with you or learn more about the company what's the best way for them to do that yeah, thanks for having me uh you can reach me at mike at carpoollogistics.com and again for everyone listening march 16th atlanta Inno event mike and his company are going to be there as well as a lot of other great startups thanks for listening everyone have a great day